Thank you so much for tuning in. Just as a forewarning, if you're listening with your kids, in this episode, we discuss the very serious issue of sex trafficking. In many ways, Seattle is currently experiencing unprecedented prosperity. The job market is flourishing and cranes can be spotted all over the city as a visual reminder of our booming growth. But in the dark corners of our city, a tragic epidemic rages on that no one wants to discuss, sex trafficking. According to the Department of Justice, Seattle is considered one of the worst cities in the U.S. for sex trafficking. While Washington led the nation to criminalize human trafficking, it remains a hotbed for the trade due to the city's ports, the I-5 corridor, and its proximity to an international border. While certainly a global problem, sex trafficking runs deep in our region. In King County alone, as many as 27,000 men go online to solicit sex each day. And a recent study estimates 12% of the men buying sex from minors work in the tech industry. This is most definitely a Seattle problem, our problem. A local organization, Real Escape from the Sex Trade, or REST, was founded in 2009 to offer freedom, safety, and hope for victims of sex trafficking and those involved in the trade. Please listen with open ears and an open heart as REST Director of Development, Edward Sumner, shares more about what REST is doing to contribute towards a solution. Welcome to Rise Seattle Podcast, the podcast about Seattle, the people, their stories, and Seattle's future. So on today's episode, we are thrilled to talk with Edward Sumner. Uh, Edward is the Director of Development for rest real escape from the sex trade so thanks for being with us today we're um we're excited to talk with you thanks for having me yeah maybe can you just give us a little bit about yourself uh, what you do at rest yeah you bet um so i have the privilege of serving as the director of development which means my primary aim is the financial empowerment of the work that we do cool yeah so talk to me about uh rest's mission um why is it important how does it affect us uh, specifically here in Seattle, but even nationwide. Yeah, so so REST was founded in 2009, and we envision a community that is free from commercial sexual exploitation, and our mission is to provide pathways to freedom and safety and hope for victims of sex trafficking and people involved in the sex trade. And I think that the general working paradigm when we think sex trafficking, hear sex trafficking, is that it's an over-there issue, um, an international issue, a global issue, and it absolutely is. I mean, we hear and understand um, that there are places like Vietnam and Cambodia uh, where uh, extreme poverty and parental complicity create contexts where very, very young children are sold into sexual slavery to accommodate primarily a sex tourism industry that's driven by men from the Western European and the United States. Um, India has the caste system where we see young women oppressed by long-term debt structures where they're literally born into brothels. Um, so it is absolutely an over-there issue. But in 2008, there was a study that was done out of the University of Washington, uh, Dr. Deborah Boyer, uh, that confirmed that there were between three and 500 underage girls being sold for sex in King County alone, the vast majority of which were local. So that's what put rest on the map was saying wow there is a localized problem right here uh, and and we need to respond to that in some some way um, so that's how how we got on the map um, the statistical evidences of what's happening local and nationwide are, are difficult um, but um, we know that the problem is significant the average age all stakeholders estimate for young women entering into prostitution in the United States is between 13 and 14. They estimate that as high as 80% have experienced pretty chronic sexual abuse either in their family of origin or in the foster care system. Uh, and they also estimate that 50% of runaway teens are engaged by a trafficker within 72 hours of leaving home. For us, more locally, uh, we've been able to forge pretty meaningful partnerships with local law enforcement. Um, and so what we have discovered um, is that traffickers tend to prey on homeless and street-involved young people and in the areas that they kind of coalesce. Uh, and so, for example, we've learned from undercover officers that in Westlake Center, for example, downtown where they pop up the carousel during the winter, um, that women 
can be approached within a period of sort of 20 to 40 minutes. So it's a very dedicated, very consistent, and oftentimes very creative and compelling effort on the parts of the traffickers to exploit and recruit and coerce these young women when they're at their most vulnerable. And when they're approached, is that a, a invitation or is it more of a forced interaction? Yeah, so those forced interactions um, do occur at times, um, and they tend to be where um, the media will focus or um, the sort of you know suburban nightmare where a young woman is abducted and forced into sexual slavery, and that does occur, and it's gut-wrenching, and it absolutely needs to be addressed. It is much more frequently, though, um, a relationally based effort. Um, so, for example, you know, a young woman walking around Westlake Center, she's engaged by a trafficker who might say something like, hey, babe, baby, what are you doing? You want to go to McDonald's? Look like, you know, the conversation starts um, because her home life is likely to be so wrecked. You know, she'll have a proclivity to share uh, some of her pain and some of her hurts and some of her disappointments. And uh, many of the traffickers are well versed at selling a dream, which is, hey, it's going to be you and me against the world. I'm here to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. We'll get your nails done. You'll always have money. I'll dress you right. I'll treat you right. I love you. And for young women and girls who have experienced compounded sexual abuse, those are all of the right things to say. I mean, these young women are emotionally, spiritually, psychosocially at their most vulnerable. And the dream that they sell has everything to do with filling those spaces. Then after a period of time, the narrative will change, the narrative will switch. And the approach might be something like, um, hey, I want us to have all the nicest things and we can get there a little, much, a little bit faster if you can just do a little work on the side and we're already having sex anyway, so why don't you just get paid for it? Um, and because, again, they have physiologically begun to believe that some measure of exploitation or sexual abuse is what they were created to be and do, and because their dream of actually being loved and being with someone hangs in the balance, they'll say yes. When they discover, um, and they often do, that that one first date, uh, which is oftentimes so traumatic, um, turns into two or ten or twenty or hundreds over the course of the year, they begin to understand that they're trapped because when they push back against a trafficker and say, no, 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 I don't want to do that anymore, or I didn't make my quota, that's typically when the physical violence that we understand pimps can deploy or traffickers can deploy begins to take place. There's also um, a very intentional process to um, isolate these young women. So even if they had a few friendships or they had a few uh, family members that they could kind of reconnect with when they kind of hit a point or hit bottom or whatever, um, the traffickers are very skilled at isolating them almost entirely uh, when they flip that switch. So they absolutely lack the resources, the relationships, and the agency to make any choice about getting out of the life once they're hooked in. So while the narratives are diversified, the circumstances are diversified, that kind of a narrative is not uncommon in the lives of the young women that we have the privilege of serving at rest. Wow. And so that's that's where rest comes in, right? We have this we have this problem abroad, but we're talking about local here in Seattle. So what what's the solution that you guys are offering or, or um, yeah, how does rest step in to com- combat that? Yeah, so uh, early on, we wanted to be sure that we did our due diligence and completed discovery to understand what was working. Um, so we did that, and we discovered a few agencies nationwide and a few abroad that were doing good work and that were um, making a difference in the contexts contexts in which they were serving. And what we discovered really early on was that relationship was the key intervention. So we stuck with that. Um, There's also an unfortunate working paradigm we see all too often in the nonprofit sector, and this is not a judicious comment about the other nonprofits that are out there, but it's not uncommon for us to look to individuals uh, of power and privilege to make decisions about what it is the people they're trying to serve actually need to get better. 
we didn't want to philosophically adopt that paradigm. And so our aim early on, this is in 2009 when we kind of got started, uh, was to simply build relationships of trust and rapport, build some credibility with women who were being sold on the street in the hopes of increasing the likelihood of their asking for help. That, that was it. Uh, and that's what we did. And so we had a small team of dedicated, trained, compelled um, women who would throw on rest messenger bags and go out to those areas uh, in Seattle where women were being sold on the street. And at that time, that was sort of that traditional picture that we might see as women kind of walking up and down the sidewalk. Um, you've got cars of buyers circling the block, and then there was rest on one corner with the messenger bags and the comfort kits. And really what we wanted to do was just communicate to these young women that, hey, we see you, you're valuable, we want to get to know you, we're here to care for you in whatever way we can. Uh, and that's how it began. And so, you know, our comfort kits would include, you know, lipstick and harm reduction products and our rest hotline number so that when a woman decided she was ready or had an experience that triggered, okay, I've got to get out of here, she would have someone to call. Um, and that trust and that credibility, because we were out there every Friday night from 10 or 11 p.m. to, you know, 1, 2 or 3 a.m., um, began to gain some traction. And so they did begin asking for help. And what we discovered was that the kind of help that they were asking for simply didn't exist in the community. And so we uh, did two things. We, A, tried to figure out if there were other folks that could do it or were already doing it, and if not, we were going to build it. And so over time, that building process has culminated into what we would now describe as our continuum of care, which is composed of prevention efforts, intervention activities, and, and restoration. So the things that they began asking for really early on um, was um, community advocacy or, or, or case management. Almost all of the women that we would connect with had some presenting need, even if they weren't physiologically ready to leave the life, right? So we're doing case management now. We actually call it community advocacy because philosophically we don't like to think about our women as cases to be managed, right? Um, and so we have three dedicated community advocates who are all about coming alongside women who are seeking to exit the sex trade and who have identified goals that they believe will get them closer to the life that they really want. So these can be things like detox or seeing a doctor or talking about housing or talking about jobs. And we will work to say yes to all of those things. More frequently, though, um, those requests are much lower threshold. I've never had a driver's license before. I've never had a birthday party. So we absolutely say yes to those things as well. So community advocacy is something that has grown over time. And the other thing was housing. Um, it was a surprise to us in some ways because there are so many other great providers of housing for women in hard places throughout the city. You've got Mary's Place and Hope Place and YWCA and all of those venues. But what we were hearing is that the women that we were serving didn't identify as victims of domestic violence. They didn't identify as addicts and they didn't identify as people who were experiencing homelessness because oftentimes they weren't. So that was a significant learning process for us. Um, we still perhaps would have nudged them towards those options if we weren't also hearing from those same agencies that they weren't clinically designed to meet the unique needs of women who had experienced the kind of trauma that our women have experienced. So in 2012-2013, um, that's when we took our first step into restorative housing. Uh, we piloted the rest house with just two women. Um, learned a great deal, primarily that it's way more complicated and way more expensive to do the work than we thought. Uh, and then in 2013, we raised some funds and we can now serve as many as six women, single, pregnant, or parenting for a period of up to a year. We've got a full complement of staff down at the rest house. Uh, we're also doing prevention um, in the uh, most at-risk areas. So we've got prevention curriculum that we take into uh, the juvenile detention centers. Uh, we're doing mentorship along the way. Uh, and then we're, our big push this year is to get our emergency receiving center open and running for the most recently recovered young women and girls. So talk to me about how these the traffickers have responded to you guys. Has there been backlash? I mean, I'm imagining a couple of women sitting on the corner street corner with a rest bag. Like, um, were they accosted? Were they approached? Were they, you know, was, is there any stories about that? And then also, like, is there any backlash 
against these women for trying to get out. Um, if 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 a John sees I mean, John, is that correct? Is that what they're called? So we refer to the 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 buyers as uh-huh. the Johns, okay. and the traffickers. Um, some refer to as pimps. As pimps. Yeah. Okay. So let let's say a, a pimp begins to see evidence of arrest kit, right, or finds your card. Like, is there negative response to that? Great question. Um, we get that one quite a bit. It sort of sounds crazy that we'd be out there in the middle of the night with buyers rolling around and traffickers rolling around. Um, and one of the things that has helped to temper the proclivity um, for that kind of um, kind of backlash, if you will, um, is that the traffickers know that we're working really, really closely with law enforcement. Um, so there's this sort of perspective that, okay, any, any step towards rest that I might take is a step towards risk that I might take because they know that we're a social service urgent agency that's working closely with law enforcement. So that's served us well. Um, the short answer is that we've never had any harmful or dangerous interaction with traffickers over the years. Um, that reason being one of them. Um, I think the second is, and this is a more unusual uh, one, is that um, one of the things about the subculture of what they call the game um, is a hard and fast list of rules that nobody breaks. There are rules for traffickers. There are rules for the women. Um, And because we've been out there so long, we've kind of had our spot, our corner, if you will, right? And so one of those rules is you don't go on another, you know, corner that's not yours. And so we've kind of taken up this very unusual residency there. Um, So that has played into it as well. Um, Also, many of the traffickers that are out there um, have created their organization, if you will, in such a way that they're not doing a lot of the hands-on work. Um, what they will typically do um, is is rear up and position the woman that has been with them the longest, um, and forgive the term, it's derogatory and awful, but it's called a bottom bitch. And so that individual will be responsible for a lot of the hands-on recruiting, a lot of even times the physical violence that's handed out. So the traffickers aren't actually required to break the law all that often. And so that's been part of it too. So they're actually not always frequent on the street because the women are so pinned down um, that the traffickers don't need to be there. They're just waiting for those quotas to be to be met. Um, I've heard it said also um, from some of our direct service staff um, that because the traffickers know um, how dependent upon them the women are, they just don't see rest as much of a threat. In fact, um, if we're willing to extend a little bit of care and to be a listening ear and to provide some things, that's just work that they kind of don't have to do. Uh, so all of those reasons taken together um, have, again, tempered that proclivity towards backlash. The reality is, you know, when a woman does exit the sex trade, um, you know, it means um, a significant loss in revenue for for those traffickers. I mean, the reason that sex trafficking is becoming quickly becoming the most lucrative criminal enterprise is a reality of cold economics. I mean, if I'm an arms dealer or a Coke dealer, I can sell you a kilo or a case of firearms and I have to spend the resources to replenish that supply. I can sell a woman 10, 12, 16, 20 times a night and I don't have to replenish anything. So a lot of the organized crime syndicates have understood that, begun to understand that sex trafficking is much more lucrative than drugs or firearms. So when you take a woman out of that, um, it they take a hit, clearly, um, but oftentimes their recruiting pipelines are so full um, that it's a loss that they're willing to just absorb. Can we back up for a second yeah, and just sure. maybe take like a, a 30,000 foot perspective on things? So you guys are in the trenches uh, in Seattle working to, you, you describe yourself as a sex trade abolitionist, mm-hmm. is that right? Mm-hmm. So in your perfect scenario, there would be no sex industry mm-hmm. in Seattle to start with and then beyond, right? I think from, I guess, my perspective of culture would be that a lot of times the sex industry is looked at as kind of a um, accepted part of life, mm-hmm. right? We think, I think of, you know, if, if someone conjures up an image of a prostitute, I think oftentimes like Julia Roberts comes mm-hmm. into mind, right? Of this mm-hmm. empowered woman that's making a choice to um, live her life her mm-hmm. way and, and be swept off her feet by her client, right? Um, 
But what I'm hearing from you is that that's not the case. What is the what is maybe the actual profile of of a girl, mm-hmm. and then also to uh, as we look at the flip side of that of these clients, these Johns, who are these guys that are that are doing this? Yeah, uh, great question. And there are significant cultural influences that have created the sex trade in this country for sure. Um, there are, in fact, um, a small percentage of commercial sex workers who would describe their experience as one um, that's characterized by choice and agency. Um, you may hear from commercial sex workers that they've never been raped, they've never been sexually abused, they screen all of their clients and they're clearing 250 k a year, and, and that is their reality. Um, we would express gratefulness that they hadn't experienced any of the chronic abuse that the majority, the majority, I don't think that's a word, <laughs> but the majority of women that, that, that we serve have experienced. Um, there have been a couple of studies uh, nationwide that have uh, polled as, as many as 750 or, or 800 women in the sex trade. And about 80% have communicated that if they had the resources and relationships to leave the life, they would. So we have focused there. Um, What's challenging is that the voice of the dominant culture tends to pervade. And what I mean to say is there's a certain dependency that we have on the narrative of the dominant culture that says prostitution looks like pretty women, or prostitution sounds like this small percentage of commercial sex workers who have never experienced trauma or abuse. The culture relies on that narrative to continue resting in a posture of apathy or indifference or uninvolvement. We rely on that dominant narrative, and what's deeply troubling is it's wrong. So being able to dig into that in conversations like this and begin to flip the script a little bit and say, okay, that is, that is an exceptional narrative true of a small amount of women who are in the sex trade. The vast majority are these young women and girls who we're talking about here today and that we have the privilege of serving at, at rest. Um, I think if you were to have asked me when I first got to rest what it, what it would take um, to create a community that is truly free of commercial sexual exploitation, I would have said, continuing to bolster rest continuum of care. And it remains an absolutely critical part of of the work. Um, Having dug in a little bit further, um, I would say that addressing and engaging sex buyers is also absolutely critical, and that's true. And you asked about buyers, um, and what we've discovered um, here in King County, uh, we've we've worked with the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office, and um, they have um, taken a vested interest, and this is huge uh, because it's not that common nationwide, but in philosophically decriminalizing prostitution and aiming to increase the number of arrests and convictions of sex buyers and creating accountability for them. It's a really big deal. Because traditionally, the girls might be prosecuted, is that? Yeah, it was not uncommon even five years ago for an arresting officer to arrive on the scene, uh, remove the woman and remove the buyer from the car, seek discovery on how much cash had been exchanged for whatever sex act had been rendered, uh, retrieve the cash from the woman, give it back to the man, write him a ticket, and arrest her and take her to King County. What? That was commonplace. And nationwide, it's still not all that uncommon. Um, So King County has been a front runner in flipping that, that that script. Um, now in King County, if you get arrested for buying sex from an adult, you'll pay about a $1,500 fine. You won't do any jail time, but you're obligated to a sex buyer intervention program that our friends at Ops is putting on. And the aim there is to help men understand some of those issues of objectification and, and sexual integrity and all of those things. So it's a step in the right direction. Do you think that the punishment should be more severe? I mean, should we classify these men as sex offenders? Is that something that... So what's interesting about that is that if you get arrested for buying sex from a minor, uh, you might do 24 months in prison, um, you pay about a $5,000 fine, and you will have to register as a sex offender. Um, I am of the opinion um, that the sentencing minimums Um, for any kind of crime that involves sexual abuse should be higher. Um, What 
is most important to me um, is to see a conversation grow around what it means to not only criminalize the act of purchasing sex, to include the acts that take place. Men don't get criminalized for the abuse that happens or the violence that occurs. It's simply the act of purchasing sex. I'd like to see that change. Um, I think that men should be required to negotiate a substantial amount of risk before they make that decision to purchase the opportunity to exploit someone so vulnerable. And the risks are just not high enough right now, uh, in my opinion. The King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office, because they were doing this work, they've been amazing. Um, they wanted to investigate how many buyers were talking about. And so um, what's changed for us pretty significantly, and one of the other ways that we're um, doing meaningful work is that women being sold on the street doesn't happen nearly as frequently as it used to because the online marketplace has proliferated so significantly. So the majority of commercial sex is now sold online. Uh, so we have begun doing text outreach, gathering phone numbers that are featured online, and then sending out a message that communicates that, hey, we're here to, to help. Uh, our last text outreach exercise sent numbers to about 600 different women that were being sold, and we got about 45 positive responses. It was astonishing. So great. So on the flip side of that, the King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office wanted to understand, okay, how many, how many sex buyers are we talking about? Like, how many, how many guys are actually doing this? So similarly, they leveraged the largest and most prolific online marketplace for commercial sex, which is Backpage.com, which you may or may not have heard of. Um, and they discovered... Uh, they wanted to isolate things, so they only used Backpage.com. There's probably 30 or 40 other sites where sex can be purchased, but Backpage is by far the largest. Um, and so on Backpage, on one single day, just in the city of Seattle proper, there were 8,806 unique IP addresses actively soliciting sex online in one day. Over 8,000. 8,806. It's 3.5% of the entire male population in the city of Seattle. So they have very conservatively extrapolated that number out over the rest of King County and conservatively estimate that there's approximately 25,000 sex buyers in King County. It's astonishing. So the demand reduction piece is really, really important, which is why we're so grateful for the work that Ops is doing. And one of the things that we hear oftentimes is, hey, we need to get those guys' faces on the billboards. We need the names out. We need to expose them. We need to do all of those things. Um, and I totally get that. And it wasn't until I participated in a portion of the curriculum that Ops is putting on where I began to understand why that... Um, posture is problematic right well that's moving towards shame culture right like you're absolutely yeah. correct uh and so one of the exercises that uh the founder of ops walked us through um during that session um, was this understanding of um where the baseline for cultural manhood is created and he talked about how at very young ages we as young men and boys learn very very quickly on the playground at school that um, it's typically the strongest and the loudest and the fastest and the most charming and the most confident that get elevated to positions of power and posture in our little circles, right? The irony is that none of us ever signed up for that. It's just the way that it goes down. And so if you happen to be, for example, yours truly, uh, quiet, relatively weak, small, imaginative, kind, compassionate, patient, the words that that subculture of boys would use to almost criminalize those attributes have two distinctives about them. They are violent and they are feminine. So what I might be experiencing as a young boy on that playground are suddenly my, my, my deepest senses of worry and anxiety and shame and lack of power and smallness and weakness. I'm beginning to connotate with these words that are violent and feminine. They begin with B and C and P, right? I mean, all of those things. So at a very, very young age, those connections are starting to, to happen. So what we come to understand about men is that shame is often a deep driver for sexually unhealthy behavior. 
And we can't miss that while those feelings are connecting at very young ages, that has become characteristic of what the pornography industry is creating, right? Those violent and feminine features that pornography brings together preys upon that deep insecurity that a lot of men began to develop as boys. My mind was, I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is, we're not talking about these things. So that huge number of buyers are diverse. They're diverse in terms of ethnicity and race, socioeconomic status, family status, all of those things. So it's not just the scuzziest of men that Absolutely are out there. Absolutely not. No, we... Um, know that there are executives who will spend forty, fifty thousand dollars on sex every year. Um, the the one very frequent distinctive, however, that we have learned um, both from a research perspective and an experiential perspective is the vast majority of sex buyers will communicate having had a chronic addiction to pornography. There are a great many um, organizations now that are championing championing this this narrative and helping folks understand that physiologically there is a porn progression that takes place and creates a physiological deterioration into increasingly unhealthy decisions about sexual activity. Said a different way, uh, we've come to understand that prolonged addiction to pornography impacts the brain in the same way that drugs and alcohol do, meaning that two things are happening. One, it's becoming increasingly difficult to quit, and two, it's requiring exposure to increasingly deviant content to achieve the physiological hit that we're accustomed to achieving. And so then it is not uncommon when men typically come to the, to the end of that pornographic addiction that they begin venturing out into more risky engagements, bikini barista stands, adult entertainment venues, or, or purchasing sex. Um, so we've had buyers share things like, man, with the po pornography that I was looking at and the kind of pornography I was looking at, and as often I was looking at it, buying sex for the first time was just not that big of a deal. So that's a really, really important insight. That's not to say that everyone who looks at pornography is going to become a sex buyer, but the risk is clinically based. So the work that REST is doing, engaging buyers and developing an anti-pornography narrative that is as compelling as the pro-pornography narrative is absolutely critical in terms of really creating a culture that's free from commercial sexual exploitation. So those three things are huge. Um, three years into the work, I am increasingly convinced that in order to abolish sexual slavery in our time, we need to raise a generation of children who are reared and equipped and empowered and taught and encouraged to come up against objectification, exploitation, and pornography. Um, all of the work scales back to men that are buying sex today and women that will be exploited today. The work begins there. But taking a unique and focused and creative approach with children to raise them generationally opposed to the sex trade um, is absolutely critical in my mind. So let, let me let me play a little devil's advocate here, I guess. Um, let's say I'm a businessman. I, I see an economic uh, need. Uh, I see these 24,000, 22,000 buyers of sex, um, men who are, who are basically wanting to take part in this activity. Um, what would you say to the bikini barista owner, um, to the um, uh, you know, strip club owner, um, who's probably taxpaying, law-abiding citizen? Um, what would what? I guess what's what's your story to tell them that they are a part of the problem, and how how do you navigate someone who's probably invested quite a bit of money and is probably yielding quite a bit of money um, from whatever business it is that they have? Um, what would you, what would you say to them? That's a great question. Um, I think that confronting the realities and i mean the same the same could be said perhaps for a producer of pornography right um i i i would like to think that 
helping them to understand how the commodification of another human being is just inherently racked with problems would be a compelling um, a compelling thing for them. I don't know if that would be true or not. Um, I think helping them to understand how uh, men participating in any of those activities has an eroding factor to any healthy sexual relationship that they're going to have in their life would be compelling for them. But I don't know if that would be true either. Uh, I think helping them to understand um, the, the role um, that those venues play in furthering the deterioration of men's sexual integrity into increasingly exploitative behavior. I would hope that would be compelling, um, but I'm not sure that it would be. Uh, and then I think, I think ultimately trying to characterize regardless of how significantly their own perspective had been damaged by the culture um, that those women at the Bikini Barista stands and the women that are dancing on those stages have significant inherent worth and value and beauty and character um, and are daughters, right, and sisters and why I mean, all of those things, kind of that personal appeal to say, this is just not okay. I would hope that that would be compelling as well. Um, you know, we, we haven't had the opportunity to um, engage a dialogue of, of that kind, but it would be it would be great to do so at some point. You know, we've, we've often thought what it might look like to begin developing relationships from an outreach perspective with, with, with traffickers, you know, and we've never really asked the question, you know, what, what, what is it about our culture that convinces people entrepreneurially that the best way to elevate their socioeconomic status is to exploit other women? I don't know that we know the answer to that. I have some ideas, but uh, we don't know the answer to that. Um, so those are the things that I would try and say um, in the hopes of shifting their thinking a little bit. Back to the tactical for a second. You mentioned you work closely with local law enforcement. What does that relationship look like, um, I, I guess, as from a relationship level? And then also just on boots on the ground, what does it look like when... Um, when you interact with law enforcement? Yeah, so um, we provide crisis intervention and stabilization support for referrals made to rest by law enforcement primarily. Um, so, and also when a young woman calls the rest hotline and is in need of rescue from a trafficker, we can partner with local agencies to help make that happen. So we're uh, moving forward um, in opening an emergency receiving center um, that will bolster this effort. Um, one of the narratives that we've heard from our friends in local law enforcement is that there's, there's not a place for women to go right now. We've also heard from women, there's not a place for me to go right now. Um, the rest house is doing very, very well, but the most recently recovered young women and girls are not physiologically or psychosocially ready to commit to a one-year program. So this need for crisis intervention, stabilization services, and emergency shelter is collectively identified as the biggest need to fill. So some time ago, uh, in partnership with the YWCA and OPS and uh, Seattle PD, uh, we beta tested this emergency receiving center model. Um, we had some space up on Capitol Hill with uh, four rooms with bunk beds and kind of a shared living space. And so the idea was, uh, and over the course of that evening, um, law enforcement deployed an undercover buyer whose aim was to engage women that night and invite them into this emergency receiving center venue that we had available. And over the course of that evening, they engaged with 13 different women and afforded the opportunity to jump into emergency services that night and emergency shelter that night. 13 out of 13 said yes. We did it the following week. It was another 9 out of 9. So that confirmed for us that the fundraise, the significant fundraising that would need to take place to open up an emergency receiving center where 24-7 intake could happen was absolutely critical. 
Um, so we've moved forward in that way, um, and we anticipate that that's going to be the last significant gap in service for us to fill. So the emergency receiving center will um, significantly bolster our capacity to serve women. It will relieve our community advocates for having to scramble for, okay, a hotel voucher is there, a bed at the Y for a couple of days to say, hey, you can do emergency shelter here for 30 days. And our hope is also that it will simultaneously bolster the inclination of law enforcement to say, hey, okay, we got a dedicated resource. Let's once, twice, three times a year deploy a sting operation and see what kind of work we we can do to recover and refer women to the ERC. Um, so we're really, really excited about that. Still in the midst of fundraising, but we're aiming to get that open in September or October. That's great. So that would be kind of your current initiative that you're pushing on? Yeah. So that, that would be our most critical need currently. And we're really excited about running a, a fund-a-day campaign. What we've uh, learned is that it's going to cost $1,500 to provide 24 hours of emergency care for as many as seven women. So we're inviting folks. To, to fund a day with, with a gift, a singular gift or a group from a bunch of folks, folks for 1500 bucks to fund that one day of the calendar year. Um, if we get that funded, we'll be rolling it 24-7. So we're super excited about that. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, I, I imagine the women who come out of rest, um, there's a certain amount of protection maybe that's needed. Can you tell us a success story mm-hmm. of someone who has come out of rest? Yeah, you bet. Um There was a woman recently who had been engaged by a trafficker uh, downtown and coerced into the life, and she was being sold online after a very short period of time of being with this guy. Um, The text outreach work that we're doing is a big deal, and we had the privilege recently of... um, hiring a peer support specialist who is a survivor and she's helped us to significantly fine-tune a lot of the things that we're doing and so we adjusted the text message that we had been sending out and this one said something like hey i used to be in the life and now i'm helping women get out i'd love to chat and so this particular uh young woman did call Um, the hotline. She was invited to come to our drop-in services at Thrive. She immediately connected with the case manager. They started working on an application for the rest house where she ended up residing. And it was insane because in a two-week period from calling the rest hotline, she had landed at the rest house. It doesn't normally go down that way. Um, But for us, we feel like that's one story where it really kind of highlights our continuum of care um, in a way that's meaningful and compelling. And her her journey will will continue for sure. but that's that's one success story, and and we have we have women um, that have um, gone on to do great things. Uh, we've had women that have gone on to, you know, secure safe and supportive housing, have children, and be mamas that are doing really really great. That are going to school, getting jobs, all of those kinds of things. Uh, and so we have the the privilege of bearing witness to to that work, and it's a joy. Great. So rest launched in two thousand nine, and. That was kind of on the cusp of Seattle's latest boom, right? And we've been in the midst of this amazing period of time the last five, six years of where Seattle's really become a global, a true global city and um, continues to be on the rise. So what, how has that affected the sex trade, one, and then also your work within that? It seems like the city's prospering wherever you look. But obviously, you are working in an industry and with individuals that aren't necessarily prospering, right? So how is maybe in that dynamic of of Seattle growing and exploding, what does it look like to do what you guys do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that we have continued to uncover great need. while simultaneously moving the needle uh, in the fight against sex trafficking, and we're thrilled about that. Um, when we recently investigated for text outreach, there were uh, almost 2,000 ads posted online selling sex. That's a high number, uh, and we're aiming to move the needle there. Uh, I think that based on, this is speculation, um, but based on the significant number of individuals with disposable income that are moving to the city from other places, um, could be increasing demand. Um, I think that, you know, Seattle is a place where um, the focus on 
actualization is significant. Um, the focus on entrepreneurship is significant. The focus on affluence and developing affluence is significant. And all of those things can work in concert to create a sense of entitlement. And so it is not uncommon for men who are experiencing power and privilege and wealth and affluence and attention to feel entitled to um, sex. So those things could potentially undergird the increase for demand. We also have a lot of single young men moving to the city, that may also be increasing demand. So those would be things that I would imagine are, are, are probably true. Um, I, I think for us at rest at the same time, it creates a really meaningful opportunity because we have a lot of individuals who are prospering. We have a lot of individuals who have disposable income that provided the opportunity to engage and invest in our work increases the likelihood of us being able to do really amazing things. I mean, there are folks in this city that could write a check to fund the ERC for a year lickety split. It's $547,000, by the way. <laughs> uh, if you're listening. If you're listening. like that, that can happen. And so we feel like in our city especially, um, there is this unique opportunity to really do something special in the movement. Um, we have partners at Microsoft who care deeply about this work. In fact, we pitched them last week on streamlining our text outreach solution in such a way that we can more effectively do it here, but then also parcel it out to other providers across the country. Like that's that's amazing. So so we're th we're thinking about about those things. But but Seattle has become this outrageous city of of growth and of progress. Um, that has tremendous benefit, but also uh, creates some challenges as well. I think historically, too, um, Seattle has always been a very sexually liberal city. Um, at one time, we boasted the largest brothel in the entire nation, um, and that wasn't that long ago. Uh, and so um, that that narrative of being a sexually liberal city um, is one that will likely continue and contribute in some way. So all three of us here are, are dads to daughters, um, and I know, um, that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this, right? Is just, it's very near and dear to our hearts. Um, when I'm driving down Aurora and I see, you know, somebody who I, I can put two and two together and think that they're likely in some form of, uh, of the sex industry, uh, it just breaks my heart. Um, so with that context of you being a dad living in Seattle, um, what is, what is your hope? For the future, I know you've you spoke to raising a, a younger generation uh, who cares deeply about these issues. But what, what's what's your hope? My hope um, is that my daughter um, will continue to be exhausted by hearing how deeply loved she is by me and by God. Um, you know, I don't. Uh, have the privilege of seeing her every day, and so in the time um, that I am afforded, uh, you know, I take great care to pour into her and love on her and build her up, and, you know, when I put my finger on her chubby little chin and say, I love you, baby, and she says, I know, Dad, something good is happening. I, I want her to be bolstered and anchored in, in who she is because... Um, it will increase the likelihood of her making really good decisions about who she's with, how she spends her time, and will undergird some of those vulnerabilities that um, are in our culture. Um, my hope um, is that the culture will shift. I mean, she's six, and we are living in a culture that will seek to objectify her at a very, very young age. Um, the young men and boys that are growing up alongside my daughter are preyed upon by a pornographic industry that are seeking to hijack any notion around a healthy sexual life. Um, those are men that will potentially pursue my daughter. Um, so I want her to be undergirded and bolstered and deeply, deeply cared for so that she can make good choices. I also want her to understand 
um, some of the risks that are involved. You know, there is a significant growing demographic of young women who are experiencing addiction to pornography. And I want to, as best I can, uh, preserve her perspective in a way that's healthy and good. So my hope is that dads will take an acute and clear responsibility for um, raising their daughters uh, in, in ways that preserve that. Um, and love their sons into understanding what healthy sexuality really looks like. Um, that dads and moms would move past the, the fear and the awkwardness and the kind of hot under the collar conversation around pornography and sexual integrity and masturbation and all of those things because things can go downhill so, so quickly. Um, that's my hope, is, is that parents um, of any kind blended families, foster families, uncles, like everyone will just become part of the conversation uh, in rearing a generation that's that's growing up opposed to exploitation. Yeah, that's good. Well, we're, we're, we're honored to speak with you and um, honored to provide this forum for you to, um, to, to provide awareness for, for what's going on in our city and abroad. Um, where can people find out more information about rest and about the work you guys are doing? Yeah, best place to go is our website, which is IWantRest.com. You can follow us on Twitter there, hook up with, with us on Facebook as well. So that's the easiest spot to go for sure. And you mentioned the 1500 uh, uh, Tell me Yeah, so uh, we're, we're currently uh, cultivating gifts of $1,500 to fund one full day of service at the Emergency Receiving Center. So we're available to talk more about that. You can absolutely give online. My contact information is available on the website as well if folks want to connect in person. One more question too. So let's say someone's listening and they, um, they're struggling with porn addiction. They're struggling with the possibility of even wanting uh, to go and purchase sex, where where could they go? Yeah, so a couple of great resources. Um, uh, Fight the New Drug is easy to find. They've got lots of great information. They've got online accountability groups. Uh, and Covenant Eyes also offers similar services. And Triple X Church as well are kind of the three that I would recommend for folks who need help. Easy to engage and easy to get help there. Edward, thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for the courage that you have to talk about it. Um, you mentioned that, you know, growing up you were a small, caring, um, you know, somewhat uh, wimpy guy, and I don't see that at all in you. <laughs> I, I see a brave and ferocious and courageous man um, who inspires me um, to want to be a better dad, um, inspires me to want to talk about these um, these issues. So thank you for doing what you're doing, and thank you for taking time out of your busy day. Uh, to join us. We're, we're very grateful. It was a privilege to be here. Thanks for the encouragement. Needed and felt. Today's intro and outro music is courtesy of Bird Talker. You can find their new album, Just This, on iTunes and Spotify. Rice Seattle was produced and recorded by the very talented Brett Baird. You can contact us and find all the show notes and episodes on our website, riseseattlepodcast.com. You can connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at the Rise Seattle and use the hashtag Rise Seattle. You can subscribe to our podcast and write us a very nice five-star review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks for our next episode. Join us in two weeks when we talk to the Fremont land baroness, Susie Burke. You won't want to miss it. They weren't going to sign off in time on that Friday for me to roll the building. This is the moving of the building. I said, well, come on out on Sunday with the Seattle Times, and I'll show you how we're going to drive it on those uh, 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 747 wheels it's on. I am going to drive it like a vehicle out of my driveway, across the street, onto my 
other property's driveway and park it. You come on out and show me why I can't do that. 